10. Reasons for the Depressed Fortunes of Calvinism Today What reasons are we to assign for the present-day defection of Calvinism? That the celebrated five points of the Calvinistic star are not shining so brightly today will hardly be disputed by anyone. When we consider the trend of present-day thought, we readily conclude that the fortunes of Calvinism, if we may change the figure, are not at their flood. In many places where it once flourished, it has now almost disappeared. There are particularly no Calvinists without reserve left among the acknowledged leaders of religious thought in France, Switzerland, or Germany, where Calvinism was once able to give such a good account of itself. In England, Calvinism has practically disappeared. In America, there is no longer any large church in its corporate capacity aggressively maintaining the Calvinistic heritage. In Scotland, however, we are glad to say that the heroic free church still raises its voice amid the sad defection of the larger bodies. And in the great free church of Holland, we have a truly Calvinistic church in the modern world, one in which the Christian religion is aggressively set forth on the basis of Holy Scripture in the Reformed faith. History shows us quite plainly, however, that periods of spiritual prosperity alternate with periods of spiritual depression. But above all, we believe in the invincibility of truth. Truth crushed to the earth shall rise again. The unending years of God are hers. That Calvinism has many adversities is not to be wondered at, as long as the fact remains that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, and he cannot know them because they are spiritually judged, 1 Corinthians 2.14, so long will this be a strange, foolish system to the natural man. As long as fallen human nature remains as it is, and as long as the decree stands that Christ himself is to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to the natural man, 1 Peter 2.8 These things will be an offense to many. Nor was it to be marveled at that the immortal Swiss reformer who was called to such a prominent place in the development and defense of these doctrines has been on the one hand the most passionately loved and admired and on the other the most bitterly hated and abused among all the outstanding leaders in the church. Since faith and repentance are special gifts from God we should not be astonished at the unbelief of the world. For even the wisest and acutest of men cannot believe unless they receive these gifts. It is very appropriately written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning will I bring to naught. 1 Corinthians 1.19 And again, the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He taketh the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knoweth the reasonings of the wise, that they are vain. Wherefore, let no one glory in men. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 19-21 The cause of any person believing is the will of God, and the outward sound of the gospel strikes the ear, but in vain, until God is pleased to touch the heart within. This is a system which has always been strongly opposed by the world, and it is as strongly opposed now as ever. Indeed, how could it be otherwise when men by nature is at enmity and war with him from whose mind it has emanated?
It is not to be expected that God in his wisdom and man in his folly would agree. God is an all-wise and all-holy sovereign. Man unchanged is a sin-blinded rebel who wants no ruler and most certainly not an absolute ruler. Since the enmity of man's heart toward the distinctive doctrines of the cross is as great and as intense as ever, a system such as Pelagianism or Naturalism, which teaches salvation by our own good works, or such as Arminianism, which teaches salvation partly by works and partly by grace, strikes a quicker response in the unregenerate heart. When the gospel becomes palatable to the natural man, it ceases to be the gospel that Paul preached. And it is worth remembering here that in every town in which Paul preached, his gospel did cause either a riot or a revival, and not infrequently both. Calvinism may be unpopular in some quarters, says McFridge, but what of that? It cannot be more unpopular than the doctrines of sin and grace as revealed in the New Testament. Another reason for the depressed fortunes of Calvinism today is its tremendous emphasis upon the supernatural. In all events and in all things from eternity to eternity, Calvinism sees God. His hand is visible in all the phenomena of nature and in all the events of history. Through all occurrences, his one increasing purpose runs. We live in an age which is anti-supernaturalistic, hence it is distinctively hostile to Calvinism. The emphasis today is upon the physical sciences, upon rationalism in thought and sentiment. Even in present-day Christianity, the tendency is to take the Bible merely as a human production and to look upon Christ merely as an outstanding man. Present-day modernism, which in its consistent form is pure naturalism and autosoteric, is the very antithesis of Calvinism. All of this has produced a naturalistic religion which says, hands off to God, and it is not strange that Calvinism, with its great emphasis on the supernatural, is not popular in our day. We need not be surprised, then, when the adherents to these doctrines are found to be in the minority. The truth or falsity of scripture or doctrines cannot be left to the outcome of a popular vote. In the following words, Dr. B. B. Warfield, that giant of thought and action, has given us a good analysis of the attitude which the world has taken toward Calvinism in recent years. After saying that Calvinism is theism come to its rights, that it is religion at the heights of its conception, in that it is evangelicalism in its pure and only stable expression, he adds, Consider the pride of man, his assertion of freedom, the boast of power, his refusal to acknowledge the sway of another's will. Consider the ingrained confidence of the sinner in his own fundamentally good nature, in his full ability to perform all that can be justly demanded of him. Is it strange that in this world, in this particular age of this world, it should prove difficult to preserve not only active but vivid and dominant the perception of the everywhere determining hand of God, the sense of absolute dependence on Him, the conviction of utter inability to do even the least thing to rescue ourselves from sin at the height of its conception? 
Is it not enough to account for whatever depression Calvinism may be suffering in the world today to point to the natural difficulty in this materialistic age conscious of its newly realized powers over against the forces of nature and filled with the pride of achievement and of material well-being of guarding our perception of the governing hand of God in all things in its perfection of maintaining our sense of dependence on a higher power in full force of preserving our feeling of sin unworthiness and helplessness in its profundity is not the depression of Calvinism so far as it is real significant merely of this that to our age the vision of God has become somewhat obscured in the midst of abounding triumphs that the religious emotion has in some measure ceased to be the determining force in life and that the evangelical attitude of complete dependence on God for salvation does not readily commend itself to men who are accustomed to lay forceful hands on everything else they wish and who do not quite see why they may not take heaven also by storm. Yet there is no occasion for Calvinists to feel discouraged. The easygoing religion of today, with its emphasis on social problems rather than on doctrine, has brought into the church multitudes which in other ages would have remained outside, and the mere fact that Calvinists are not so conspicuous in the congregation does not necessarily mean that their actual numbers have decreased. There are very likely more Calvinists in the world today than ever before, says Dr. Warfield. Even relatively, the professedly Calvinistic churches are, no doubt, holding their own. There are important tendencies of modern thought which play into the hands of this or that Calvinistic conception. Above all, there are to be found everywhere humble souls who, in the quiet of retired lives, have caught a vision of God in His glory and are cherishing in their hearts that vital flame of complete dependence on Him, which is the very essence of Calvinism. And again, I fully believe that Calvinism, as it has supplied the sinews of evangelical Christianity in the past, so is its strength in the present and is its hope for the future. And in close conformity with this, says Dr. F. W. Wurtscher, it is no wonder that our age, distraught by its very knowledge, irreverent of antiquity, impatient of creeds and dogmas, intolerant alike of human and divine authority, overborne by the currents of atheistic naturalism and pantheistic evolution, is directing its heaviest artillery of unbelief against Calvinism as the strongest citadel of supernatural revelation and redemption. And as Professor Henry B. Smith prophesied a generation ago, one thing is certain, that infidel science will rout everything excepting a thoroughgoing Christian orthodoxy. Let us then resolutely accept this challenge, and let us be of good cheer, for Calvinism can no more perish from the earth than sinful man can utterly lose his sense of dependence upon God, or the Almighty can abdicate the throne of his universal dominion. James Anthony Froude, the distinguished professor of church history in Oxford University, England, said of the rather lifeless religion which had become so common in his day, This was not the religion of our fathers. 
This was not the Calvinism which overthrew spiritual wickedness and hurled kings from their thrones and purged England and Scotland, for a time at least, of lies and quackery. Calvinism is the spirit which rises in revolt against untruth, the spirit which, as I have shown you, has appeared and reappeared, in due time will appear again, unless God be a delusion and man be as the beasts that perish. Calvinism not only has a future, says Dr. Abraham Kuyper, it has the future. Everything else crumbles and melts away. Theologically, there is much awareing of oneself all around us, and there is much needless toiling before the people because Calvinism is too much for them. But just because it is such a power, it captures the spirit and will not let them go. It may be proper at this point to say that the author of this book was not reared in a Calvinistic church, and he well remembers how revolutionary these doctrines seemed when he first came in contact with them. During one Christmas vacation of his college course, he happened to read the first volume of Charles Hodge's Systematic Theology, which contains a chapter on the decrees of God, and which stated these truths with such compelling force that he was never able to get away from them. Furthermore, he takes some pride in the fact that he has reached this position only after a rather severe mental and spiritual struggle, and he feels deeply sympathetic towards others who may be called upon to go through a somewhat similar experience. He knows the sacrifice required to withdraw from the church of his youth when he became convinced that that church taught a system which contained much error. Most of his closest relatives and friends belong to that church, and he will perhaps be pardoned if he betrays a bit of intolerance towards those born Presbyterians who remain members of the Presbyterian Church while openly opposing or ridiculing these doctrines. Section 6, Chapter 28, Page 365 Calvinism in History 1. Before the Reformation 2. The Reformation 3. Calvinism in England 4. Calvinism in Scotland 5. Calvinism in France 6. Calvinism in Holland 7. Calvinism in America 8. Calvinism in representative government 9. Calvinism in education 10. John Calvin 11. Conclusion 1. Before the Reformation It may occasion some surprise to discover that the doctrine of predestination was not made a matter of special study until near the end of the 4th century. The earlier church fathers placed chief emphasis upon good works such as faith, repentance, almsgiving, prayers, submission to baptism, etc. as the basis of salvation. They, of course, taught that salvation was through Christ, yet they assumed that man had full power to accept or reject the gospel. Some of their writings contain passages in which the sovereignty of God is recognized, yet alongside of those are others which teach the absolute freedom of the human will. Since they could not reconcile the two, they would have denied the doctrine of predestination and perhaps also that of God's absolute foreknowledge. They taught a kind of 
synergism in which there was a cooperation between grace and free will, it was hard for man to give up the idea that he could work out his own salvation. But at last, as a result of a long, slow process, he came to the great truth that salvation is a sovereign gift which has been bestowed irrespective of merit, that it was fixed in eternity, and that God is the author in all its stages. This cardinal truth of Christianity was first clearly seen by Augustine, the great spirit-filled theologian of the West. In his doctrines of sin and grace, he went far beyond the earliest theologians, taught an unconditional election of grace, and restricted the purposes of redemption to the definite circle of the elect. It will not be denied by anyone acquainted with the church history that Augustine was an eminently great and good man, and that his labors and writings contributed more to the promotion of sound doctrine and the revival of true religion than did those of any other man between Paul and Luther. Prior to Augustine's day, the time had been largely taken up in correcting heresies within the church and in refuting attacks from the pagan world in which it found itself. Consequently, but little emphasis had been placed on the systematic development of doctrine and that the doctrine of predestination received such little attention in this age was no doubt partly due to the tendency to confuse it with the pagan doctrine of fatalism, which was so prevalent throughout the Roman Empire. But in the fourth century a more settled time had been reached, a new era in theology had dawned, and the theologians came to place more emphasis on the doctrinal content of their message. Augustine was led to develop his doctrines of sin and grace partly through his own personal experience in being converted to Christianity from a worldly life and partly through the necessity of refuting the teaching of Pelagius who taught that man in his natural state had full ability to work out his own salvation that Adam's fall had but little effect on the race except that it set a bad example which it perpetrated that Christ's life is of value to men, mainly by way of example, that in his death Christ was little more than the first Christian martyr, and that we are not under any special providence of God. Against these views Augustine developed the very opposite. He taught that the whole race fell in Adam, that all men by nature are depraved and spiritually dead, that the will is free to sin but not free to do good toward God, that Christ suffered vicariously for his people, that God elects whom he will irrespective of their merits, and that saving grace is effectually applied to the elect by the Holy Spirit. He thus became the first true interpreter of Paul and was successful in securing the acceptance of his doctrine by the church. Following Augustine, there was retrogression rather than progress. Clouds of ignorance blinded the people. The church became more and more ritualistic and salvation was taught to be through the external church. The system of merit grew until it reached its climax in the indulgences. The papacy came to exert great power, political as well as ecclesiastical, and throughout Catholic Europe the state of morals came to be almost intolerable. Even the priesthood became desperately corrupt, and in the whole catalogue of human sins and vices, none are more corrupt or more offensive than those which soiled the lives of such popes as John the Twenty-Third and Alexander the Sixth. 
From the time of Augustine until the time of the Reformation, very little emphasis was placed in the doctrine of predestination. We shall mention only two names from this period, Gottschalk, who was imprisoned and condemned for teaching predestination, and Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation who lived in England. Wycliffe was a reformer of the Calvinistic type, proclaiming the absolute sovereignty of God and the foreordination of all things. His system of belief was very similar to that which was later taught by Luther and Calvin. The Waldensians also might be mentioned, for they were in a sense Calvinist before the Reformation, one of their tenets being that of predestination. 2. The Reformation The Reformation was essentially a revival of Augustinianism, and through it evangelical Christianity again came into its own. It is to be remembered that Luther, the first leader of the Reformation, was an Augustinian monk, and that it was from this rigorous theology that he formulated his great principle of justification by faith alone. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and all the other outstanding reformers of that period were thoroughgoing predestinarians. In his work, The Bondage of the Will, Luther stated the doctrine as emphatically and in a form quite as extreme as can be found among any of the Reformed theologians. Melanchthon, in his earlier writings, designated the principle of predestination as the fundamental principle of Christianity. He later modified this position, however, and brought in a kind of synergism in which God and man were supposed to cooperate in the process of salvation. The position taken by the early Lutheran Church was gradually modified. Later, Lutherans let go of the doctrine altogether, denounced it in its Calvinistic form, and came to hold a doctrine of universal grace and universal atonement, which doctrine has since become the accepted doctrine of the Lutheran Church. In regard to this doctrine, Luther's position in the Lutheran Church is similar to that of Augustine in the Roman Catholic Church. That is, he is a heretic of such unimpeccable authority that he is more admired than censored. To a great extent, Calvin built upon the foundation which Luther laid. His clearer insight into the basic principles of the Reformation enabled him to work them out more fully and to apply them more broadly. And it may be further pointed out that Luther stressed salvation by faith and that his fundamental principle was more or less subjective and anthropological, while Calvin stressed the principle of the sovereignty of God and developed a principle which was more objective and theological. Lutheranism was more the religion of a man who after a long and painful search had found salvation and who was content simply to bask in the sunshine of God's presence, while Calvinism, not content to stop there, pressed on to ask how and why God had saved man. The Lutheran congregations, says Froude, were but half emancipated from superstition and shrank from pressing the struggle to extremes, and half-measures meant half-heartedness, convictions which were half-convictions, and truth with an alloy of falsehood. Half-measures, however, could not quench the bonfires of Philip of Spain, or raise men in France or Scotland who would meet, crest to crest, the princes of the House of Lorraine. The reformers required a position more sharply defined, and a sterner leader, in that leader they found in John Calvin. For hard times, hard men are needed, and intellects which can pierce to the roots where truth and lies part company. 
It fares ill with the soldiers of religion when the accursed thing is in the camp. And this is to be said of Calvin, that so far as the state of knowledge permitted, no eye could have detected more keenly the unsound spots in the creed of the church, nor was there a reformer in Europe so resolute to exercise, tear out, and destroy what was distinctly seen to be false, so resolute to establish what was true in its place, and make truth to that last fiber of it the rule of practical life. This is the testimony of the famous historian from Oxford University. Fowle's writings make it plain that he had no particular love for Calvinism, and in fact he is often called a critic of Calvinism. These words just quoted simply express the impartial conclusions of a great scholar who looks at the system and the man whose name it bears from the vantage ground of learned investigation. In another connection, Fowle says, the Calvinists have been called intolerant. Intolerance of an enemy who is trying to kill you seems to me a pardonable state of mind. The Catholics chose to add to their already incredible creed a fresh article that they were entitled to hang and burn those who differed from them, and in this quarrel the Calvinists, Bible in hand, appealed to the God of battles. They grew harsher, fiercer, if you please, more fanatical. It was extremely natural that they should. They dwelt, as pious men are apt to dwell in suffering and sorrow, on the all-disposing power of providence. Their burden grew lighter as they considered that God had so determined that they must bear it. But they attracted to their ranks almost every man in Western Europe that hated a lie. They were crushed down, but they rose again. They were splintered and torn, but no power could bend or melt them. They abhorred as no body of men ever more abhorred all conscious mendacity, all impurity, all moral wrong of every kind, so far as they could recognize it. Whatever exists at this moment in England and Scotland of conscious fear of evil doing is the remnant of the convictions which were branded by the Calvinists into the people's hearts. Though they fail to destroy Romanism, though it survives and may survive long as an opinion, they drew its fangs, they forced it to abandon that detestable principle that it was entitled to murder those who dissented from it. Nay, it may be said that by having shamed Romanism out of its practical corruption, the Calvinists enabled it to revive. At the time of the Reformation, the Lutheran Church did not make such a complete break with the Catholic Church as did the Reformed. In fact, some Lutherans point out with pride that Lutheranism was a moderate Reformation. While all Protestants appealed to the Bible as a final authority, the tendency in Lutheranism was to keep as much of the old system as did not have to be thrown out, while the tendency in the Reformed Church was to throw out all that did not have to be kept. In regard to the relationship which existed between the church and the state, the Lutherans were content to allow the local princes great influences in the church, or even to allow them to determine the religion within their bounds, a tendency leading toward the establishment of a state church, while the Reformed soon came to demand complete separation between church and state. As stated before, the Reformation was essentially a revival of Augustinianism, 
The early Lutheran and Reformed churches held the same views in regard to original sin, election, efficacious grace, perseverance, etc. This then was the true Protestantism. The principle of absolute predestination, says Hasty, was the very Hercules might of the young Reformation, by which no less in Germany than elsewhere it strangled the serpents of superstition and idolatry. And when it lost its energy in its first home, it still continued to be the very marrow and backbone of the faith in the Reformed Church, and the power that carried it victoriously through all its struggles and trials. It is a fact that speaks volumes for Calvinism, says Rice, that the most glorious revolution recorded in the history of the Church and of the world since the days of the Apostles was affected by the blessings of God upon its doctrines. Needless to say, Arminianism as a system was unknown in Reformation times, and not until 1784, some 260 years later, was it championed by an organized church. As in the 5th century there had been two contending systems known as Augustinianism and Pelagianism, with the latter rise of the compromised system of semi-Pelagianism. So at the Reformation there were two systems, Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, with the latter rise of Arminianism, or what we might call semi-Protestantism. In each case there were two strongly opposite systems with a subsequent rise of a compromised system. 3. Calvinism in England A glance at English history readily shows us that it was Calvinism which made Protestantism triumphant in that land. Many of the leading Protestants who fled to Geneva during the reign of Queen Mary afterward obtained high positions in the church under Queen Elizabeth. Among them were the translators of the Geneva version of the Bible, which owes much to Calvin and Benza, and which continued to be the most popular English version till the middle of the 17th century, when it was superseded by the King James Version. The influence of Calvin is shown in the 39 Articles of the Church of England, especially Article 17, which states the doctrine of predestination. Cunningham has shown that all of the great theologians of the established church during the reigns of Henry VIII, Edward VI, and Elizabeth were thoroughgoing predestinarians, and that the Arminianism of Laud and his successors was a deviation from that original position. If we search for the true heroes of England, we shall find them in that noble body of English Calvinists whose insistence upon a pure form of worship and a pure life won them the nickname Puritans, to whom Malcoy refers as perhaps the most remarkable body of men which the world has ever produced. That the English people became Protestant, says Bancroft, is due to the Puritans. Smith tells us the significance of this fact is beyond computation. English Protestantism, with its open Bible, its spiritual and intellectual freedom, meant the Protestantism not only of the American colonies, but of the virile and multiplying race, which for three centuries has been carrying the Anglo-Saxon language, religion, and institutions into all the world. Cromwell, the great Calvinistic leader and commoner, planted himself upon the solid rock of Calvinism, and called to himself soldiers who had planted themselves upon that same rock. 
The result was an army which, for purity and heroism, surpassed anything the world has ever seen. It never found, says Malkali, either in the British Isles or on the continent, an enemy who could stand its onset. In England, Scotland, Ireland, Flanders, the Puritan warriors, often surrounded by difficulties sometimes contending against threefold odds, not only never failed to conquer, but never failed to destroy and break in pieces whatever force was opposed to them. They at length came to regard the day of battle as a day of certain triumph, and marched against the most renowned battalions of Europe with disdainful confidence. Even the banished cavaliers felt an emotion of national pride when they saw a brigade of their own countrymen, outnumbered by foes and abandoned by friends, drive before it and headlong rout the finest infantry of Spain and force a passage into a counterscarp which had been just pronounced impregnable by the ablest of the marshals of France. And again, that which chiefly distinguished the army of Cromwell from other armies was an austere morality and the fear of God which pervaded the ranks. It is acknowledged by the most zealous royalists that in that singular camp no oath was heard, no drunkenness or gambling was seen, and that during the long dominion of soldiery the property of the peaceable citizens and the honor of women were held sacred. No servant girl complained of the rough gallantry of the redcoats. Not an ounce of plate was taken from the shops of the goldsmiths. Professor John Fisk, who has been ranked as one of the two greatest American historians, says, It is not too much to say that in the 17th century the entire political future of mankind was staked upon the questions that were at issue in England. Had it not been for the Puritans, political liberty would probably have disappeared from the world. If ever there were men who laid down their lives in the cause of all mankind, it was those grim old Ironsides, whose watchwords were a text of holy writ, whose battle cries were hymns of praise. When Protestant martyrs died in the valleys of Piedmont, and the papal autocrat sat on his throne in luxury, gathering his blood-stained garments around him. It was Cromwell, the Puritan, supported by a council and nation of the same persuasion, who wrote demanding that these persecutions cease. On three different occasions Cromwell was offered and urged to accept the crown of England, but each time he refused. Doctrinally, we find that the Puritans were the literal and lineal descendants of John Calvin, and they, and they alone, kept alive the precious spark of English liberty. In view of these facts, no one can rashly deny the justice of Fisk's conclusion that it would be hard to overrate the debt which mankind owes to John Calvin. McFittredge, in his splendid little book, Calvinism in History, says, If we ask again who brought the final great deliverance to English liberty, we are answered by history, the illustrious Calvinist, William Prince of Orange, who, as Malcoli says, found in the strong and sharp logic of the Geneva School something that suited his intellect and his temper, the keystone of whose religion was that doctrine of predestination. 
and who with his keen logical vision declared that if he were to abandon the doctrine of predestination he must abandon with it his belief in a superintending providence and must become a mere epicurean and he was right for predestination and an overruling providence are one and the same thing if we accept the one we are in consistency bound to accept the other 4. Calvinism in Scotland The best way to discover the practical fruits of a system of religion is to examine a people or a country in which for generations that system has held undisputed sway. In making such a test of Roman Catholicism, we turn to some country like Spain, Italy, Colombia, or Mexico. There, in the religious and political life of the people, we see the effects of the system. Applying the same test to Calvinism, we are able to point to one country in which Calvinism has long been practically the only religion, and that country is Scotland. McFetridge tells us that before Calvinism reached Scotland, gross darkness covered the land and brooded like an eternal nightmare upon all the faculties of the people. When Calvinism reached the Scotch people, says Smith, they were vassals of the Romanish church, priest-ridden, ignorant, wretched, degraded in body, mind, and morals. Buckle describes them as filthy in their persons and in their homes, poor and miserable, excessively ignorant, and exceedingly superstitious, with superstition ingrained into their characters. Marvelous was the transformation when the great doctrines learned by Knox from the Bible in Scotland and more thoroughly at Geneva, while sitting at the feet of Calvin, flashed in upon their minds. It was like the sun arising at midnight. Knox made Calvinism the religion of Scotland, and Calvinism made Scotland the moral standard of the world. It is certainly a significant fact that in that country where there is the most of Calvinism, there should be the least of crime, that of all the people of the world today, that nation which is confessedly the most moral is also the most thoroughly Calvinistic that in that land where Calvinism has had supremest sway, individuals and national morality has reached its loftiest levels. Says Carlyle, This that Knox did for his nation we may really call a resurrection as from death. John Knox, says Froude, was the one man without whom Scotland, as the modern world has known it, would have had no existence. In a very real sense, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland is the daughter of the Reformed Church of Geneva. The Reformation in Scotland, though coming some time later, was far more consistent and radical than in England, and it resulted in the establishment of a Calvinistic Presbyterian in which Christ alone was recognized as the head of the Church. It is, of course, an easy matter to pick out the one man who, in the hands of Providence, was the principal instrument in the Reformation of Scotland. That man was John Knox. It was he who planted the germs of religious and civil liberty and who revolutionized society. To him, the Scotch owe their national existence. Knox was the greatest of Scotsmen, as Luther the greatest of Germans, says Philip Chaff. The hero of the Scotch Reformation, says Chaff, though four years older than Calvin, sat humbly at his feet and became more Calvinistic than Calvin. John Knox spent the five years of his exile, 
1554 through 1559 during the reign of Bloody Mary, mostly at Geneva, and found there the most perfect school of Christ that ever was since the days of the apostles. After that model he led the Scotch people with dauntless courage and energy from the medieval semi-barbarianism into the light of modern civilization and acquired a name which, next to those of Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin, is the greatest in the history of the Protestant Reformation. No grander figure, says Froude, can be found in that entire history of the Reformation in this island than that of Knox. The time has come when English history may do justice to one but for whom the Reformation would have been overthrown among ourselves. For the spirit which Knox created saved Scotland, and if Scotland had been Catholic again, neither the wisdom of Elizabeth's ministers, nor the teaching of her bishops, nor her own trickeries would have preserved England from the revolution. He was the voice which taught the peasant of the Lothians that he was a free man, the equal in the sight of God with the proudest peer or prelate that had trampled on his forefathers. He was the antagonist whom Mary Stuart could not soften nor Maitland deceive. He it was that raised the poor commons of his country into a stern and rugged people who might be hard, narrow, superstitious, and fanatical, but who nevertheless were men whom neither king, noble, nor priest could force again to submit to tyranny. And his reward has been the ingratitude of those who should most have done honor to his memory. The early Scotch Reformed theology was based on the predestination principle. Knox had gotten his theology directly from Calvin in Geneva, and his chief theological work was his treatise on predestination, which was a keen, forcible, and unflinching polemic against loose views which were becoming widespread in England and elsewhere. During the 17th and 18th centuries, topics such as predestination, election, reprobation, the extent and value of the atonement, and perseverance of the saints were the absorbing interests of the Scottish peasantry. From that land, those doctrines spread southward into parts of England and Ireland and across the Atlantic to the west. In a very real sense, Scotland can be called the mother country of modern Presbyterianism. 5. Calvinism in France This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. 
You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.